Okay, let's look to the Lord. Oh, Father God, Lord, we love you. Lord, we bless you. Lord, you are our life. Lord, you have taught us again and again that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth and from your book. And we pray for grace and help as we study your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's uh, please turn to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. The book of Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14 And I'm reading out of the King James Bible. It says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Praise the Lord. And this morning I'd like to talk to you about the word glory and the meaning of glory and the existence of glory in three senses. First, I'd like to talk to you about the glory of God. God's splendor and majesty and power. Second, I'd like to talk to you about the glory of man. And thirdly, I'd like to talk to you about the glory and honor that the church is called to give to God. So, without delay, the first subject, the glory of God. When we see this image of Paul kneeling, he says in verse 14, for this cause I bow my knees. When we see him kneeling in our imagination and appealing to the Lord. Oh Lord, dip into the reserves of your glory. Dip into the resources of your glory and give your followers inner strength. It might remind us of the, of, uh, the event in the Old Testament when King Solomon kneeled before the temple that he was dedicating, a a magnificent white building. And he kneeled before it. He, He had constructed a special platform so that all the people could see and hear the dedication of the temple. And he, the Bible talks about how he knelt right down before the temple and before the congregation And he dedicated the temple to the Lord. And and we read about how the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The glory of the Lord filled a building. The priests, if you look at the scene closely, the priests had begun to make sacrifices and offerings of animals in this newly dedicated temple. And so they were using the brazen altar kind of like a magnificent and enormous barbecue. And they had already begun making those sacrifices, but they had left the courtyard 
And they were unable to return because the glory of the Lord filled the temple. But there's a vast difference between what was going on with Solomon kneeling and with the, with the apostle Paul kneeling. Because when Paul was kneeling and praying for God's people, a new time had come. A new time and a new covenant. And as Jesus described it, the time had come when the true worshipers would worship the Father in spirit and in truth. They would no longer need to worship in Jerusalem. They would no longer need to worship at that special building in Jerusalem called the temple. They no longer would have to offer animal sacrifices in worship. And so the old way and its priesthood had ended. Jesus Christ brought in the new covenant, a new way. And God would dwell, rather than in a building, God would dwell in the hearts of people. Are you God's temple? Are you the temple of the Holy Spirit? Because the New Testament describes people as being the temple of the Holy Spirit, both individuals and the whole church together. Look at verse 16. It refers to the inner man. And verse 17 says that Christ may dwell in your hearts. And so we see that the Spirit will enable us by being within us. This is basic Christian understanding, understanding of the New Testament. Verse 17 says we're rooted and grounded in love. Now, this is different than the Old Testament where the people were rooted and grounded to a hill, to a temple, to a city, to a law. to a tradition. Being rooted and grounded in love is something very different because love is a principle. Love is a moral imperative and a commitment. It's not a physical or a concrete thing. The Old Testament was very, you might say, fleshy in the sense that the worship of God was very tangible and outward and rule-governed and ceremonial. The New Testament is rooted and grounded in love, and love doesn't stay on one side of a mountain. Love will reach wherever it can reach, and when Jesus and his followers were filled with the Spirit of God, they took the gospel to the ends of the earth. Hallelujah. We could look at Solomon, at the dedication of the uh, temple in the Old Testament, if you would uh, keep your hand here in Ephesians 3, and look at 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 2. Solomon gets a little proud here. And he says a little bit too much. 
He is, after all, a faulted human being, like we all are. He says in 2 Chronicles 6, 2, But I have built an house of habitation for thee, he says to God. Sounds a little cheeky, doesn't it? Sounds a little proud, doesn't it? I have built an house of habitation for thee and a place for thy dwelling forever. Well, he was a little confused for a moment, perhaps a little overexcited at the dedication of the temple, something that was anticipated and longed for, something that they worked very hard at for a long period of time. It was very anticipated. The adrenaline was flowing, I'm sure. I think he went a little too far here. He was a little confused, but only a moment later, he catches himself, you might say. Because, after all, he was a wise man. The Bible talks about the great wisdom of Solomon, and he catches himself. So verse 18, it's still Solomon talking, and he says, But will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. Well, he he wised up quickly, didn't he? I know you're a little shocked that I would say anything critical about Solomon and say that he was a little foolish for a second because you know of him as a wise man, but remember, he's just a man. And he's faulted. And he went a little too far, if you ask me, by saying, I have built him a habitation forever. Because the truth is, Nebuchadnezzar and the empire of Babylon came along and dismantled that house completely. And then after it was rebuilt and remodeled by Herod, the Roman army came along and dismantled it again. There is no place on the earth, granted, There is no place on the earth like the holiest place, otherwise known as the Holy of Holies, before the Ark of the Covenant. What a special place on the earth. But it was still, as special as it was on earth, it was still just earth. Not really God's throne. It was a golden box carried by priests with staves, a very heavy golden box, and it, and it uh, played the part or played the role of a throne, of God's throne. But don't worry, there's, there is no gold box that is God's throne. The heavens is his throne. The earth is his footstool. Where is the dwelling place you could make for God? Amen? And the church, and when I say the church, I mean the body of Christ, the gathering together of God's people is a greater temple than Solomon's temple or Herod's temple. I'm sure there was no man like Solomon, yet he was still just a sinful man. 
We can read about the painful lesson that the nation of Israel was to learn. Isaiah 64, 11. Reads this way. Isaiah 64, 11. Our holy and our beautiful house, where our fathers praise thee, is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. This is uh, speaking of the uh, destruction of the temple by the Babylonians. I believe that Isaiah was looking forward to it. So the house does not make the glory of God. And a great man like Solomon is not the glory that we seek or the glory that we give honor to. A hilltop does not make the glory of God. The example right before us is Living Word Church more glorious in this building with its size and pleasant design and so on and its high ceiling? Is the church more glorious in this building than it was in a ramshackle old wood frame church in Euclid, New York? Is it more glorious now because the sound is projected to all of you through 30-something speakers instead of when Living Word Church was in Phoenix, New York, and it was projected to you from two speakers. Is 32 speakers more glorious than two speakers? It's not the building that makes God's, God glorious. God's splendor, his majesty, and his power came down on a group of unlearned Galileans in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. It was glorious, wasn't it? We don't even know for sure where that upper room is, but it was glorious. It didn't happen in the temple. It didn't happen on the hill of the temple. But every one of them, the rich ones, the poor ones, the men, the women, the slaves, the masters, they all had the glory of God upon them. Each and every one of them had become a holy of holies with its own pillar of fire. Everybody had his own personal pillar of fire, praise God. This is the nature of the glory of God. It is not created by fantastic buildings and fantastic personalities. And that leads me into part two, talking about the glory of man. The builders of the temple in Jerusalem were men of vast wealth and influence. David wanted to build a temple in Jerusalem, and, and the Lord told him, no, you, I, don't, I don't want you to build a temple in Jerusalem. But David did spend a great part of his latter life collecting wealth and materials and making arrangements with other nations 
for contractors and builders and, and artisans in preparation for building the temple. And David certainly was a great man. We might call him the bravest man that ever lived up until his time. Such a brave man of faith who did such courageous deeds in the Lord. Then his son Solomon is actually the one who uh, oversaw the construction of the temple, as you know. And we could say Solomon also was a great man, the wisest man on earth, the Bible says. People came from all over to hear his wisdom. We might also say of Jerusalem, of the site of the temple, that it was a one-of-a-kind place on the earth. How many of you think that Abraham offered his son Isaac right, right on that hill, right, right there on Mount Moriah? Amen? First um, Chronicles 22.5 records the words of David. It said, and David said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender, and the house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding magnificent of fame and of glory throughout all countries. I will therefore now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. But with Jesus, Jerusalem is no more the place to worship God. We, followers of Jesus Christ, have God's glory. And God's glory came to Ephesus, the chapter that we began reading, but it also came to Corinth and Thessalonica and Philippi and Smyrna and Rome and a thousand cities. The glory of God didn't just come to this one place and and you didn't have to go to Jerusalem to see, appreciate, sense, or feel the glory of God. You could feel the God in in whatever city you lived. It needed no king to make it glorious. It needed no man to make it glorious. The rich, the poor, the slave, the free, the man, the woman, all the different races, all the different tongues, all the different nations had the glory of God to come onto them. The glory of God will no more appear above a golden box that serves as the throne of God on earth. The ark was glorious. Yes, but not as glorious as the church. Christians today, uh, I think it's uh, definitely a phenomenon in America, as in the days of the Old Testament, like to be moved by great names and great places. It seems to be the American way to give great glory to great names and great places. We're very moved by the, quote, great man, unquote, 
culture. You see that in the Old Testament, and I think you see it in the United States of America today. If you think in America of an up-and-coming company, a, uh, a company that's going to, you know, hit the ball out of the park, you're going to associate it with a great individual, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates. There are these great personalities that receive great glory in the eyes of our world. Oh, Elon Musk. Oh, this man or that man who's the richest man in the world, and we know their names. We do it in football, too. I think it's a team sport. But it's Tom Brady's team or Patrick Mahomes' team. In America, we elevate that great individual, that great man, or that great woman. Soccer has its Messi. Basketball has its King James. And it's Luka Doncic. And it's Brianna Stewart. This is the way of the American mind to elevate a great individual. And I will tell you, it is also the way of the Old Testament. MVPs. But I'll tell you, the letters to the churches... The letters to the churches in the New Testament are not letters to individuals for the most part. They're letters to churches. For the most part, we don't even know the names of the elders in those churches. Am I telling you the truth? Think in your mind now. We've got two letters to the church of Corinth. Do you know the pastor's name in Corinth? Do you know the elders' names who were in Corinth? We could do a little research on it, and we might find that some of the church historians like Eusebius, hundreds of years later, will tell us who the first pastor of Corinth was, but it's not part of the Word of God, is it? We don't even know. Thessalonica, they got two letters. Do you know the names of any of the elders or the headship in the church of Thessalonica? These letters were sent to the churches. The New Testament doesn't play the game of the great man culture. Philippi gets a letter. Do you know the names of any of the elders or the pastor in Philippi? We don't even know their names. Rome gets a letter the church, to the church of Rome. And we know, we know more than a couple dozen of the names of the people in Rome because the Apostle Paul greets one after another after another and he seems to know quite a bit about many different people. You see this at the end of the letter to the Romans. But we don't know who the lead pastor was and we don't know who the elders were. We don't even know their names. It was a letter to the church. The New Testament is presenting us a different way than the great man culture. We may long in our hearts for the glorious heroes of history and someone to worship. And I will tell you, if you don't worship God, if you don't worship God, you will worship 
something or somebody else. You will. It is our nature. We're built to worship. Uh, If you read in Galatians chapter 5 the list of the works of the flesh, you'll find that one of them is idolatry. We have a fleshly appetite for idolatry, for the unprofitable, unrighteous worship of things and people other than God. If you're not going to worship God, there will be a fleshly draw, a pull, like a magnetism toward the worship of something or someone else. But I'll tell you, after you come to Christ and you become a worshiper of God, the same as you feel many of those works of the flesh tugging at you against the will of God, pulling you toward death, and you feel like you may be in a tug of war between one side of you and another side of you, there is a side of you that will want to draw you toward idolatry. It's not going to go away. It's one of the works of the flesh. Back to Ephesians chapter 3. And verse 21. It says, Unto him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. The Lord has given me an objective as a leader in this church, and that is to adjust the workings of our church in such a way that wherever possible and whenever possible, we become more team-like. Go team. It's a lot more work for me. It's a lot more work for the, elder, for the, for the leadership of the church to create more team, more teamwork. It's a lot of work. Uh, what, what's the lot of work? It's a lot of work to do all the communicating necessary. It's a lot of work to do all the vision building necessary. It's a lot of work to coach people, to encourage people if they stumble and fall. It's a lot of work to, you know, build up people's confidence to step out. It's a lot of work to pull back the reins a little bit sometimes too. Ease the reins, pull them back. Why would we try to be more team-like as a church? I will tell you, it's God's New Testament way. Our church has a long history of doing many wonderful things as a team. Uh, I think our, our biggest team effort of, our, of the history of our church is Living Word Academy. What a team. There are so many people involved so many people doing wonderful work there for such a long period of time. Nobody can, you know, nobody can claim all the credit for what goes on there. It's a wonderful team effort. People have really taken ownership of their part or their piece, and everybody understands that their part or their piece has to yield to the the bigger and the greater picture, the big picture. But 
we have many other examples of working as a team in the history of our church. So many different building projects that we've done from remodeling the, the uh, building a half a mile down the street. We remodeled that building uh, to remodeling the high school and many, many, many projects at camp, taking camp from, you know, an unused uh, depository of old cars and broken bottles and the detritus of partying and turning it into the beautiful place that it is now, installing an electrical system, a water system, building outhouses, clearing and clearing and clearing for trailers, road building. It was all done by teams. We did it. Praise God. It's really a beautiful thing. It it goes right up into the present. We have a a worship team, many worship teams. We have a broadcast ministry, a food pantry. What a team effort. Feeding close to 500 clients yesterday, 500 families. It's got to be a team effort or it's not going to happen, right? So many people work for weeks in preparation for one food pantry. There's the home fellowships that are going on now. A lot of teamwork there. Just, this is just naming a few of Living Word Church's team endeavors. None are perfect. None of the teams are perfect. None of their endeavors are perfect. We can find fault with every one of the projects and we can find fault with every one of the teams. But I think they represent our church's best accomplishments. It's the the best thing that we've done. Hallelujah. The Old Testament, in contrast, is a book of great individuals. Abraham the Great. The tribes of Israel were preserved by a single great world leader, the Grand Vizier of Egypt, Joseph. Joseph the Great. The nation of Israel was delivered from Egypt by Moses the Great. The nation of Israel served the Lord when there was a charismatic judge present among them to lead them to victory over their oppressive enemies. There was Othniel and Deborah and Yael and Ehud and Samson and Gideon, all great ones. When Israel, the nation, had a God-fearing king, the entire nation prospered and was spared judgment. When the king was bad, the fortunes of the whole nation suffered and sank. I want to remind you, that's the Old Testament. We're living in the New Covenant. The New Testament's our book. And the books of the Bible were written to churches, not great men. We in our country and in our culture 
love to meditate on the destiny of the individual. I am a destined individual. I am an individual. I am a, I'm a person of destiny. God has a great destiny for my life. I'm challenging you and some of your deeply held thinking this morning. I know it. I think we hold a little bit too much, and it's, it's all over Christianity, if you ask me. We hold too much to the Old Testament, brothers and sisters. Jesus has come to show us a new and better way. Jesus came to change this concept of the great man. He is the only great man. Amen. Hallelujah. And in Matthew 23, 11, he says, But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. No popes, no regional presbytery, no greats. Take Paul as well as Jesus as an example. How many times did Paul mention co-authors of his letters? Most of them. But, you know, this, this, the preachers... In our sermons, we often, you know, neglect that point. But he says, Paul and Timothy to the church of Rome, and Paul and Silas to the church of Thessalonica. It's, he very often co-authors. Was he just saying it to be political? Or did he work as a team on those letters? I've got to believe Paul was a man of integrity. And he wasn't just playing games with us when he mentioned co-authors. How many times does he mention a co-author? How many times does he mention by name co-laborers, co-workers? How many people does he thank? How many people does he recognize? In how many cities did he appoint elders and then leave? In city after city after city, he appointed elders, and then he left. Maybe he would come back. But I notice on his last journey to Jerusalem, he was not even willing to go to Ephesus and to visit the actual church, but he met only with the elders. What is he doing? He's trying to help us understand in the New Testament, it is no longer like the Old Testament, the great man culture. Mm. This is going to fight with our American idolatry of the great man. We need a Patrick Mahomes. We need a Messi. We need an Elon Musk. No, we need Jesus. And we need the Holy Spirit. Can I hear an amen? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18. that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints, with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, and that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. You all, all the saints, how much do I want all of you to know? I want all of you to know the breadth and the length and the depth and the height 
Not only those of us who have letters after our name. Not only those of us who have gone to school for this or that. All of you to know experientially the power of God's glory when it comes within you. In verse 19, the word ye in the King James Bible is the plural Greek like y'all. That y'all might be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is telling us, I don't want to be more filled than you. I don't want to walk ahead of you. I want to walk with you. The church of Christ nowadays is too enamored by celebrities and stars and MVPs on the screens and in the earbuds. The real church, brothers and sisters, is near. It's near. It's flesh and blood. Serving the real church where God has put you is going to be most challenging. You're not going to be able to just sit and relax in your easy chair and watch your favorite preacher on the screen. You're not going to be able to just, you know, uh, sit on a park bench with your earbuds in, Bluetooth, uh, noise canceling, and listen to the uh, podcast of of your most esteemed and revered preacher. The real church is flesh and blood, and it's the place where God has put you. God has put you in a real church of flesh and blood, and serving there is going to be very challenging. It's going to require forgiveness. It's going to require uh, uh, tenderness. It's going to require patience. Hallelujah. That's where the true work of Christ happens. Where are you? You can't be a member of a church long distance. You can't be a member of a church just by a screen. Just by an earbud. And finally, I'd like to talk to you about the honor and recognition that the church is called to give to God. Glory, the word glory can mean majesty and splendor, like what God has. But glory can also mean to give honor and recognition because of the status and performance of a great individual. Well, compare this with verse 21 here that we've already read one time. Let's return to it. Chapter 3, verse 21. Unto him be glory in the church. So that there is a glory that God has and there is another glory that we give to him because he's deserving. There's a a glory that God has that nobody can take away from him. You can't increase his glory or decrease his glory. He has it. He's got it. But there is a glory that the church is called to give to God. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Throughout all ages, the church is never to outgrow giving God glory. It's never to uh, modernize. It's never to change with the times and stop 
giving God glory. The church is called throughout all the ages, throughout all the historical developments, throughout all cultural changes. The church has a steady call to give God glory. Praise the Lord. Chapter 4, verses 17 through 20, we won't read them, but there's a lengthy passage here that talks about turning away from the old, godless, sinful life that we lived before we came to Christ. We become truthful and upright and forgiving and generous and loving in Christ. We turn away from fornication and thievery, irresponsibility, dark, dark behaviors and dark thoughts, devilish, satanic, uh, uh, anti-God behaviors. We turn away from that. We turn toward a new life in Jesus Christ to give God glory. Our new life and the way we live in a new way gives God glory. It gives him the honor he's due. We are not simply to give God glory in our hearts. This is not something that's just, well, I'm doing it in my heart. I hope you are. I can't see your heart. And because I can't see your heart, you're not giving him glory. You have to bring the gratitude and the honor that you give to God in your heart. You have to manifest it outwardly in order to give him glory. Not only as an individual, the church, meaning the team, the body, the unit, all of us together are called to bring God glory, to give God the glory that he's due. Many online communities, if you could call them that, I think you have to put quotation marks around the, com- the word community, and organizations that are outside the church prosper to the detriment of the real physical community into which the Lord has placed us. The screen and the earbud cannot substitute for God's calling to our lives. We are very obsessed and moved by our personal destiny, what I'm destined to do. But we should realize that none of us has a destiny that is not connected to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us who are Christians, our destiny is inseparably entwined with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should give God all honor in the church. The church is called to honor God. Recognize God. Give glory to God. The church is. We can complain of insufficient time to do the routines of the Christian life, like worship services, like prayer services, like Sunday school, like fellowship, like Bible reading and prayer. Well, we do these things for God's glory not for our own glory and fulfillment. It's not all about us. It's about God. One uh, social Christian social critic named Carl Truman, he refers to, quote, that part of the body of Christ that I am particularly obliged 
to love and encourage and to which I'm accountable. Now, I want to tell you, Carl Truman is a really smart guy. He was educated at the finest schools and seminaries there are on the face of the planet. He's a professor at one of the most highly regarded uh, Presbyterian seminars, the most highly regarded Presbyterian seminar. He's a, he's a professor there. He is an ordained minister as well as a professor. He is a very in-demand speaker. But do you listen to what he just said? I'm obliged to love and encourage that part of the body of Christ where I am accountable. And he talks about his local church. It's just little. He's got way more letters after his name than his pastor does. But he says, I'm accountable to my pastor. And I've got to love the person that's next to me, whether we're natural friends or not, whether we're academic peers or not. I am called to love these people in this locality, the place where God put me and called me. That's where I'm called to give God glory. He actually confesses that he gets a bit too wrapped up in his speaking schedule and traveling and so on. He says, of course, being there, he means his local church, of all places, will never make me a superstar or a guru or earn me a fortune or get me a cool conference gig or land me on the cover of Christianity Today. I hope you can gather his humor He's got a quite an ironic humor to him. He goes on and he says, but it is nonetheless the place where I am meant to be. Destiny. My destiny is to be connected to a local church where I give God glory there. Why should the church be so dedicated to giving God glory? Because Christ made the church. Being the body of Christ and gathering, the gathering of the saved makes it so. Ephesians 5.27 says that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. We have a culture problem, brothers and sisters, a culture challenge. People are conditioned to think that they must be the sole deciders of value, of what is important. I'll decide if it's important to me. I am the only one who decides that it's important to me. Well, yeah, right. On a certain level, of course. I mean, it's obvious. How could anybody say anything different? You're going to make your own decisions for you. However, when we come to Christ and we make Jesus our Lord and we submit ourselves to his will, then we even make ourselves open to this. Lord, let me love what you love. Let me hate what you hate. Lord, you decide for me what I will value highly, you. My destiny is in you. 
My destiny is not my own personal and individual destiny. That was the great man culture of the Old Testament. Now, and ever since Jesus Christ died on that cross, my destiny is wrapped up together with the destiny of the local church where God has put me. Love what he loves. Hate what he hates. In our culture, we say, I will not be told what is important. I will decide what is important. Well, let God tell you what's important. How about him? Don't resist him. Listen to and watch God. Honor him. Honor what he has done. Get behind it. Help it in a real and physical way. Encourage it where you are, where God has put you. Your destiny is all wrapped up in the place where God has put you. What is important to him should be important to us. People in our culture are shoppers. They're consumers. They're reviewers. I hardly ever review anything. I, I do most of my shopping online. I love it. You know, because you, I don't have to go into the stores and so on. I just shop online. And I always get the, these things afterwards. After I visit my bank online, after I buy something online, after I pay my bill online, I always get, will you give us a little, take a little survey? Give us a review. How many stars do you give this? Three stars? Four stars? Five? A little explanation, perhaps? How many stars does God give? God, God get, I'm sorry. How many stars does God get? We're used to in our culture being reviewers. Pasting the stars. Oh, that, that was a four-star performance. That's a five-star object. That's a three-star person. That's a two-star book. We're shoppers. We're evaluators. We're consumers. We, we consume commodities. We're reviewers. We're voters. We opt in and opt out. I understand that's the way of our culture. I'm not going to change it. I'm resigned to it. I get it. But maybe once in a while, by the preaching of the Word of God, one individual among us can have his mind changed by the Spirit of God and no longer be a reviewer, a thumbs-up, a thumbs-down person, a voter, a consumer, a consumer of commodities. You know, the body of Christ is not a commodity. But instead, give glory to God. The church is not a commodity to be shopped for. If God gave it, we should make it glorious. We should make it glorious, weighty, and important in our hearts, in our minds, with our words, and with our actions. We should do nothing to cheapen it or demean it. We should honor it and make it more important, not less important. Oh Lord, we want to obey this call that the church would give you glory. Verse 21, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. O Lord, enable us to fulfill that prayer of the Apostle Paul. And as a team, 
a local church that you have called together as people whose destinies you have bound together in this holy and wonderful bundle called a church, that we would give you glory in this call. In the name of Jesus, amen.